Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group, starting tonight if you're so inclined. This season, we're playing the Fallout role-playing game, so if you don't already have a copy of the rules, head off to your local game shop and pick up a copy, or head to the Modiphius website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Last week, we took our group to the Dome to check the clues about Jessup chemicals there, only for him to come up empty-handed. After a bit of advice from Victor, they picked up a job for him in exchange for some information and headed to the ruins of St. Louis University to find one Darren Olchesny. And before we get into the creative process for this week's show, I need to go back and clean up a mistake I made last week. I noted when the group was entering the dome that if they got into a fight with the three guards, there'd be some serious trouble, but I never mentioned what that trouble would be. Truth be told, I didn't really think our groups would be silly enough to start issues, so I really wasn't paying it any mind. However, I also believe that if you say you're going to say something, you probably need to go ahead and say it. So, if your group did fight the guards, they'll run into issues when they exit the dome. This time, there'll be a super mutant for each member of the group, plus three human mercenaries using the stats we used for the guards. Straight up, they'll know about the fight and what happened to the guards, and whether they killed the guards or just wounded them a bit and then entered the dome, it's been decided that the group is guilty and that they will be punished. And for a super mutant, punishment means death. So the group can try to talk their way out of it, though they'll be dealing with a human who's not quite interested in helping them, It's an opposed check, but give the NPC an extra D20 for free, since if this was a skill check, we'd have the difficulty around four or five. If the group succeeds, they can still walk away, though they're probably not going to be welcome to the dome again. If they fail, well, you know what comes next. Run it, then have the group retreat to wherever they want. Fortunately for them, the guards aren't going to chase them further than a couple of blocks. And again, they're just not going to be welcome at the dome for a while. Now, when we wrapped up last week's show, I noted we were stopping where we were because I wanted to build out our NPCs for this particular section. So I took a little time this week and wrote up what I think would be an interesting NPC to put up against the group. And while I'll have Gabe put the character sheet up on the website, let's take the time here to go step by step through the process. We need to note up front that we will be leveling this character up, but we'll do the build like we usually do and build it at first level. I chose the survivor background for the character, mostly because I want that local and area expert sort of person, since that type of background will work best for what we're going to do here. Now, taking the survivor background gets us either two of their special traits or one of those and an extra perk. I went with one trait and one perk, and the trait I chose was educated, since it gives us an extra tag skill. The downside to that is if a role has failed for using a skill that isn't a tag skill, the GM gets an action point. However, since this is an NPC, I'm altering that to giving the players an action point for their pool. Let's move on to putting the special attributes together. First things first, we're lowering strength, charisma, and luck from five to four, which buys us an extra three points to use in the building, so we've got a total of eight. I think you know where I'm going with this, but let's explain it anyway. Two points each go into perception, endurance, intelligence, and agility, The reasons for doing things this way will become apparent in a bit. Next up are skills, and we'll begin with the tag skills. Remember, we get an extra tag skill thanks to the background, so we've got four. I see this little band of baddies as being wannabe mercenaries, so three of the tags will be energy weapons, small guns, and throwing. 
We have a fourth, so let's go with medicine. I had a reason for that when I took it, but now that I'm trying to explain it, I can't. Anyway, we're going to take it regardless. Of course, each of those four skills start with two points in them, and thanks to our scores, we've got a beefy 16 skill points to use to fill in more skills. We'll start by maxing the tag skills out at three each, so there's four points used. We'll also take big guns at three, explosives at three, sneak at three, and repair at three. By my math, that's 16 points, and we've got a full suite of skills. And I remember now why I did things the way I did them. While I see these guys having a limited skill set, they're really good at the skills they have. Thanks to the survivor background, we get an extra perk to choose. And since we're at the perk stage of the build, let's get a couple picked out. The first one I chose was center mass, which means a shooter can target the torso without increasing the difficulty. For me, that would make sense with the mercenary wannabe style of NPC I'm envisioning. The other perk I went with was awareness, and it works like this. If you use aim within close range, your next attack, you know, the one you're aiming on, automatically gets plus one piercing. If the damage allows for piercing damage already, then the piercing goes up by plus one. Again, this fits the style of NPC we're looking for here. Now, time to crunch some numbers. The carry weight is 190 pounds. All damage reductions are zero to start. Defense is one. Initiative is 14. And we've got 11 health points. Also, the melee is zero thanks to the low strength. Now let's get starting gear. The survivor background gives us a drifter outfit, pipe wrench, pipe gun with 15 rounds of 38 ammo, a dose of jet, one trinket, and 30 caps. From the tag skills, we had a fusion cell with 10 shots, 15 rounds of 38 ammo, four tomahawks, a first aid kit, and a stim pack. So with the initial build out of the way, let's level up. We're going to level up to level four, so that means we pick up three health points, three skill points, and three perks. Here's how that's going to work out. The health point total goes up to 14. We'll put a point each in energy weapons, small guns, and throwing. And here's the perks. Adamantium Skeleton raises the number of points of damage needed for a critical hit by one, which means for our characters it goes from five to six. Intense Training. This allows us to raise a special skill, and so we'll take Perception from seven to eight. Gunslinger. This one's a little long-winded, so check it out on page 65. We also picked up 450 caps since we're technically doing a build at a higher level, so we'll need to buy some stuff. So what I'm going to do is buy the new stuff first, then explain what we're selling, because I can assure you we're going to sell some things, and then how we spend what's left. Here's what we bought. A laser gun for 69 credits, three fusion cells, each with 20 shots for nine caps, Two frag grenades for 100, a heavy leather chest piece for 75, two heavy leather legs for 60, two heavy leather arms for 56, and a sturdy combat helmet for 105. Now, doing the math on that, we come up with 475 caps. However, if you look at the numbers, our dude here isn't much of a negotiator, so we'll argue he's paying 10% more for his gear. That brings our total to 521 caps. And since we only had 480, now we have to sell some stuff. So here's what we did. The drifter outfit and the pipe wrench were sold, getting us 65 caps. Again, though, our friend's lack of negotiating skills means he got 10% less for his stuff than he might have gotten. So he only got 58 caps. 10% of 65 is 6.5, but I rounded up to 7 instead of down to 6, just for the record. 
Fortunately for us, we were only 41 caps over on our purchases, so we wind up with a tidy 17 caps in our pocket. And the advantage to the gear is that the NPC has physical and energy resistance of 3 and 4 on the torso, legs, and arms, and 3 and 3 on the head thanks to the helmet. The weights will be totaled up on the character sheet, but I can tell you we're well within the limits, so he's armed, armored, and ready to go. Obviously, Darren Olchelsky is going to be one of the NPCs in this encounter that uses this template, but we'll expand on how many more we're going to use in a little bit. Now, I did want to address a concern that you might have about us handing the group this level of armor or the number of caps it could bring if they sell them. That could be a concern, sure, but here's something else to remember. Typically, my merchants sell things for at least 30% above book price and will only give 75% of book price when they buy things. So they're not going to get nearly the sweetheart deal we gave old Darren when we built this. And insofar as giving them the armor, well, good for them. I don't know what kind of armor your group has at this point, if any. So the opportunity to armor themselves would probably be a good one. So, short story long, don't sweat this. If they wind up with a bucket full of caps, they're going to spend them on ammo and stim packs anyway, so good on them. All right, so we've spent a lot of time this week building an NPC, and I know we've got a recap to hit at the end, so let's get to building. The group was told by Victor that Darren hangs out in the slew rubble with other addicts, and his chem of choice is Jet. You can check out what being addicted to Jet means in the book, so I'm not going to take your time here to lay it out further. Let's just make it clear that he'll be on Jet when the group approaches. We also noted that there might be lookouts around the rubble, so the group will need to be clear about how they're approaching. If they're trying to sneak in, it's agility plus sneak, but the difficulty will be a three because, well, there are lookouts. Granted, they're all on jet at the moment, but they're with it enough to be able to at least be semi-effective lookouts. So it breaks down like this. If they want to sneak in, they can do so as long as everybody makes their sneak checks. If anyone fails one, or if they're not trying to hide, They'll run into the lookouts as they approach a section of rubble that appears to have been cleared out for someone or a group of someones to camp out. If they sneak in, they surprise the four men who are laid out on dirty mattresses. Darren's not one of them, but he and the other three lookouts will be on them within a few moments. However, if they're just strolling in, or if they get caught trying to sneak, Darren and two lookouts are the ones who meet them. The initial meeting will be frosty, but they're not looking to shoot anybody right out of the gate. And for the record, the frosty meetup occurs either way, so let's just get to it. The group knows that they need to dig up information on the whereabouts of Corinth and Igmon, since Darren is part of the group that was supposed to be helping them out. That means that it's in their best interest to not start shooting people at least until they get some usable information. So, it's time to do a little bit of talking. Now remember that Darren and his group aren't the sharpest knives in the drawer, so this is going to have to be a delicate discussion. Oh, and in addition to Darren, there's three other NPCs using his character sheet. If, like me, you've got eight in your group, you need more NPCs. For those, use the Wastelander character on page 397. I realize they're a few levels lower than the group, but I'd rather have a few lower level NPCs in here, especially after I almost killed half my party a couple of sessions ago. Obviously, adjust the numbers as you see fit. This is going to be an opposed charisma plus speech check with one PC having the discussion with Darren. If, by chance, the group has any jet they'd be willing to give Darren, give him an extra d20 to roll for the check. And that doesn't stack. Whether they give a single dose or a dozen of them, they only get the one extra d20. However, the group should be able to succeed. 
Darren doesn't have a whole lot to share, but he admits that he and his group took Corinth and Igman's caps. He also admits that they never had any intentions of doing the job. But he notes, they only gave us 50 caps up front, so it's not like we ripped them off that bad. Yes, he's going to try to justify ripping them off. Play that however you feel like you want to. When the topic gets to Corinth and Igman and who might have them or where they might be, Darren's going to shrug. He didn't have anything to do with it, but he does remember hearing something from a couple of the guys he worked with that somebody was paying big caps to bring those two in. This requires a bit of a backtrack because there's another piece of information that might come out before this point. Darren will report that before the day in question, he actually never met the other five people that were supposed to be in that group. They'd all worked together before, man, but I was brought in by Marcus because they were down a man, man. He doesn't have a last name for Marcus, but Darren believes he's the second in command of the group. Now, Darren knows Marcus from various odd jobs they've both done in the past. Marcus apparently joined or formed this group while Darren just basically works enough to keep the jet flowing, man. He doesn't have a regular place he meets Marcus at, but he has seen him hanging out around Rockut Row, which is a bar that caters to a more unsavory crowd. The group probably doesn't know where it is, though any group member who wants to make a straight intelligence check can do so with a difficulty of three. The bar is located north of the Slough Rubble in the remnants of the area that was once the Fox Theater. Somebody decided at some point to clear that rubble out of one section and build a bar. Not going to take the group too long to get to the bar from where they are, especially since they don't have to cross the old highway since they're already on the correct side of it. The destruction here is just as bad as it was at Slough. Several blocks piled high with rubble, which also means that if your group needs to do some scavenging, they've got the opportunity to do so. Don't take too much time, though. I mean, after all, they are on a job. Rotgut Row is, as you might expect, not the classiest joint in the world. Heck, it's what most of us with experience with bars and pubs would call a dive bar. And if you're not quite sure what one of those are, you can Google it. Trust me, I don't care where in the world you are. If you're of legal drinking age, you've probably been in a dive bar before. Rotgut Row is the sort of place where they sweep up the teeth and mop up the blood at closing time, and the decor reflects that. A metal bar with nothing on the wall behind it, and a few high tables scattered around the room. No chairs, which makes sense since in this environment a chair could be used as a weapon, and why give these drunks more weapons? A quick glance tells how folks get their alcohol. You walk up to the bar, you place the order, and the bartender produces your drink from behind the bar. And the cups appear to be plastic or metal. No glass to be found other than the liquor bottles they pour out of. Doesn't take the group very long to get noticed. I mean, a group of folks coming in together reads like a team no matter where they go, and in here it's seen as a bit of a challenge. In other words, every eye in the place is going to be on them the minute they enter. One individual who really seems to take notice is a tall, thin African-American man with short cropped hair and a goatee that's salt and pepper. He's armored a lot like Darren Olchowski is, and we'll use that character sheet for stats for this discussion, since we don't want to use up more of our build time to create another character. The man finishes his drink, sets the cup on the bar top, and strides across the room towards the group. It's obvious by his manner that he's suspicious of their intent, but also obvious that he wants to see what's what before he allows the situation to de-evolve. He introduces himself as Marcus Coleman and waits for the group to introduce themselves and state their purpose. He will deny knowing Darren, but since the group got the info straight from the proverbial horse's mouth, it's opposed charisma plus speech roles. 
If the group fails, he's sticking to his story. And if the group continues to push, Marcus will warn them off, noting that everybody in this bar is a friend of mine. You really want to take us all on? And for the record, there's about a dozen others in the bar at present, not counting the bartender. Should the group decide it looks like a fair fight, let it run. Marcus will use all of the stats for Darren, and the other dozen will use the Wastelander stats on page 397. It shouldn't be a fight the group can lose, but it should put them in a position where they burn a lot of ammo and or stim packs to succeed with. I'll get to what they find on Marcus in a moment. Let's roll the action back and see what happens if the group succeeds on their roll. Marcus will acknowledge, reluctantly, that he knows Darren, though he'll point out, never should have worked with a jet head. Dude was more worried about his next fix than getting the job done. The role success will also get him to admit that he does know where Corinth and Igmont are, but he'll warn the group that you don't want to mess with a man. These guys are seriously suited and booted. They take this personal protection thing way too serious. You hear me? As the group might have expected, Garson Tactical is the group holding Corinth and Igmont. Marcus isn't going to give the details of the deal, and he's again going to deny knowing where they're being held. So time for another charisma plus speech opposed role, and if the group succeeds, Marcus will give them the location. It's in the basement of the old Barnes Hospital. He'll claim he doesn't know why Garson wanted him delivered there, and quite frankly, he didn't ask. But as of yesterday, both men were being held there, and that's all he knows. If they fail the check, Marcus will say, Look, man, I've told you everything I can tell you. You know who has them, so figure out the where of it on your own. At that point, even the threat of violence won't pry additional information out of him. And if the group wants to resort to violence, it's, it's going to happen. Run things the way we detailed a moment ago and let the chips fall where they may. Now, if the discussion broke out into violence before they got the information, if they win the fight, it's the bartender who speaks up. He made it a point to stay out of the fighting and is more than willing to speak to the group. He does ask, though, that they leave him some stuff off the bodies to pay for the cleanup. This is what he'll say, and feel free to break it up however you want. I heard Marcus bragging about his team getting a deal with Garson Tactical. He's been trying to get in with them for months, and they got a test job. Supposed to snatch up a couple of guys and take them to Barnes. Snatch, deliver, get paid. That's what he said. Oh, and give the bartender whatever name and description you want, and feel free to make them any gender identity you want. I didn't really have anyone in mind when I created the NPC, but I knew we needed a bartender. Anyway, the group now has a location, and it just so happens to line up with the final location they've got scouting information on. So, let the group plan out what they want to do next. And once they've done that, we're at the end of this week's build. The reason for that is we've got another game recap this week, so let's get to it. When we last played, my group had taken Eliza's offer to track down Manny, her missing courier. They managed to find where he was being held and tortured, and though they almost lost two of their members in the fighting, they ultimately succeeded at taking out all of the Marvin's carvings they ran into and successfully retrieved both Manny and the shipment. They returned both to Eliza, and we wrapped there. This week, we picked up with the group still at the shop. As they exited the shop, they noticed the job board posted outside. They read the three jobs we put on the board during that build, and they, as I had anticipated they would, took all three jobs off the board when they read them. Now, the next part wasn't what I had expected. They actually started with the third job on the list, but it gets even more interesting as we go along. Enough talk. Let me break it down. The third job on the board is the one that involves Corinth and Igmon. 
The group entered the building, and I had those two eyeballing the group when they entered, as I wanted to see if they'd seek them out or blow them off. Fortunately, they decided to seek them out. The meeting took place in the small office we described, but things went a bit differently than we wrote it out. And it requires a bit of background before we break that down. See, the way the backgrounds for my characters were done, Gabe's ghoul and Tyler's robot are from St. Louis, though they'd been gone for quite some time. Clayton's survivor, on the other hand, is not only from St. Louis, but has been here the entire time, and therefore has some insight into what's going on and who all the major players are. So their background knowledge flavored this conversation. The details of the situation and deal went down pretty much the same way as we wrote them up. I just worded things a bit differently to frame it up for my group. The group asked for details about what they were going to run into, and while some of that was going on, I took Clayton to the side and let him know that he's aware of Barnabas O'Reilly, and he knows that while Barnabas isn't what you'd call the biggest player in the game, he's no joke. I also gave him the nugget that O'Reilly uses super mutants as hired muscle. At the same time, I told Gabe and Tyler that the last time they'd been regulars in town, O'Reilly was nothing but a low-level wannabe. So there was a few minutes discussion about that. And as the discussion was going on, it was suggested that maybe the group should get another 50 caps on the deal for dealing with super mutants. Since it was presented in a reasonable way, and since an extra 50 caps split eight ways sure as heck isn't going to overwhelm the campaign, I allowed it with no rolls. While they were still in the meeting, there was some brief discussion of what their plans might be, which led to a rather humorous exchange with Jim and Tyler's robots and the rest of the party, as the robots were suggesting tactically smashing through the walls of the opera house to make it happen. And they were serious about it. The rest of the group managed to talk them out of that, but it was a rather humorous time. Before the discussion wrapped, Jim did ask for a detailed description of the small grandfatherish clock, which is the heirloom I have them looking for. I didn't write down all the details I gave, but I think I said it was about 15 inches by 10 inches and about 18 inches tall, with an analog face that takes up about half the surface of the clock. It's a mahogany wood, and the clock's got a key on the back to wind it up. Oh, and as I was giving the details, Jim was repeating them back to me, as a robot might do. Once the deeds were out there, the group left the meeting and immediately crossed the street to check out the second job on the list. The scenario started pretty much the same way as we wrote it up, with Cassidy Vernon leading the group to her father Paul, and Paul laying out everything that's happened. I'll tell you this straight up. My group's BS detectors went nuts when Paul was saying he had no idea why people were coming after him. However, they decided to play along and see where things were going. They also decided to split a bit when Cassidy pulled the group to one side to give what she knew about the situation. While that conversation was going on, Jim and Gabe stayed behind with Paul, and Jim decided he needed to do a thorough physical examination of Paul to determine whether he's telling the truth or having mental issues. I played it out that Paul was actually not only willing to allow it, but was also rather comfortable with the process. What I had decided was that Paul had had robots with programming glitches that he'd worked with in the past, so working with Jim's robot was basically like old home week for him. I also had Jim's examination confirm that the burns were chemical burns, but based on what he was able to compute from it, it was probably a medium-grade corrosive. Meanwhile, the rest of the group was talking with Cassidy about what she knew about her mother's disappearance. Since the group hadn't done the first job yet, there has been no building explosion, so I just left that out. I also wound up having to give the names of the guards who were on duty the night Juliet was taken, which I realized when I recorded the episode we built that in would probably need to happen. I didn't note the two names, so use what you want. 
I also said that one of them was probably laid up drunk in Diamond Pass, so I gave the group a second reason to head that way. Also, with the explosion out of the picture for the moment, there are two facilities for the group to check out to try to find Juliet, the Dog Down location and the Laclede's Landing one, so just keep that in mind. With two jobs already taken, they decided to hit the trifecta and hit to Diamond Pass. Once inside, they decided first to find the guard Cassidy told them about. Since I had never intended for this to actually be a part of the group's investigation, I was scrambling a bit to come up with this part. However, since it turned out to be some fun gaming, I just ran with it. I had the guard drunk and passed out with his head on the bar. The group woke him up to ask questions about the night Juliet was taken, and I had him be unhelpfully helpful. They were able to pretty much eliminate this guy as being on the take, but the guy's guard shift partner is, in the guard's word, off the reservation and not able to be found. That was my way to get the group back on track, and they got back on track. They headed to the third base saloon to meet up with Victor. And for the record, I used that gangster voice for Bruno from the beginning. The deal was straightforward and there was no negotiating or dealing that needed to be made. The group agreed to deliver the item and they got the address and the time frame. When they were done, they headed out of Diamond Pass to head for Dogtown to make their delivery. And I made a GM choice when they were headed that way, since they decided they wanted to scope out the Opera House along the way, which for the record is exceptionally plausible since they need to go past it to go where they needed to go. The choice I made was to pull the Raider attack I'd put into the original build with the intention being to run it after they finished the delivery. They scoped out the Opera House, and I noted that during the day there are two super mutants out front with armor and laser rifles, with two more across the street from the Opera House with armor and laser rifles. So they were trying to be exceptionally casual in their scoping. I did point out the window washer's rig, and of course the entire group noted the convenience of that being there. And come on, they're not necessarily wrong, but it was a funny moment. They got to Dogtown and got to Garson Tactical. The interaction started the way we wrote it up, but rather than running a distraction on the other guy in the room for Amber, the group decided they were going to go outside and made it a point to mention their mistake. On the fly, I had Amber decide to take her break at that moment, and she had the group follow her to the house we laid out and finished the deal. She gave the group their note and suggested the group head on back to Victor to give him that note and collect their payment, which the group agreed to do. Unfortunately, our night ended there as something beyond our control came up and forced us to stop our game earlier than we'd planned. So, sorry. And that's all the recap for this week. Next week's a build-only show, so we should finally be able to get some serious traction going with the whole Jessup Chemicals kidnap dudes thing. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine podcast, Role Playing History. This week, we do something a little bit different than usual as we dig into the open game license controversy that surrounded the game world for the better part of six weeks to start the year. We'll break it down and see why it was as controversial as it was. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgeandproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out this or any of the fine gaming products produced by Modifius, head to your local game shop or check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. 
Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod, on Twitter at badgmp, on YouTube and Tumblr, it's badgmproductions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we dig into the meat of this campaign arc as our group heads to Barnes Hospital to check out not one, but two incidents they need to deal with. But that's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.